Today I'd like to welcome to the PodMD studio, Nathan Rickard. Nathan is a physiotherapist with 20 years experience in treating low back pain. He has worked in both the public and private sector, leading large teams that care for musculoskeletal patients. He currently owns and operates two community-based physiotherapy clinics with a team of 12 physiotherapists. Low back pain is the most common condition treated in these clinics. He is involved in research on low back pain, currently as it affects runners, and is consulting with the new physiotherapy department being launched at Swinburne University. We do hope you enjoy this podcast, but please remember that the advice given here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about any given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of our guest, not of PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek that advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in that area. Nathan, thanks for talking with us today on PodMD. Thanks for having me, Sean. The topic of today's discussion is low back pain. Low back pain has been assessed as the single leading cause of disability worldwide, according to the Global Burden of Disease 2010, and as many as 80% of the population will experience a back problem at some time in their lives. Although most people with a new episode or acute low back pain recover in a few weeks or months, between 25 and 40% of patients who present to primary care will develop chronic back pain, defined as pain lasting for longer than three months, causing ongoing pain, dysfunction, and requiring costly treatment. Given low back pain is so common and most cases do resolve on their own without intervention, it is easy to dismiss it as the common cold of musculoskeletal injuries and just advise the sufferer to take analgesics and rest and wait for it to go away. However, at least one in four patients will develop chronic pain, which can affect them for the rest of their lives. So how can we identify these patients and help stop them from becoming part of this alarming statistic? Well, there are so many investigations, tests, questionnaires, and different approaches to managing low back pain that it's very easy, easy to get confused about the approach. On top of this, there's a very large body of research to try and wrap your head around, much of it with inconclusive results. So it's not unsurprising that low back pain is very hard to manage. When it comes to the management of any musculoskeletal condition, it helps to diagnose the problem in three categories. Nathan, what are the three categories? The first category is pathoanatomy, i.e. there's a tissue that is broken down or there are sinister tissues present. The second, is there a movement dysfunction which is constantly stressing a tissue which leads to pain? And thirdly, are there psychosocial issues causing pain sensitization? An individual patient may have severe pathoanatomy, a moderate amount of movement dysfunction, and no significant psychosocial issues compounding their pain and dysfunction. Another patient that presents with a similar pain may have no pathoanatomy present at all, but may have very poor postural control and hence significant movement dysfunction, and a moderate amount of psychosocial issues making their pain experience much worse than the patient with the same pain or type of pain, but with more severe pathoanatomy. The combination of the three interplaying factors need to be considered for successful management of an individual presentation. Addressing one category without recognising the others can lead to a very frustrating patient that can develop a lifelong problem. Quite often, it's the pathoanatomy category that is focused upon uh, to the detriment of the patient because the second two categories are often missed. The statistics showing 25 to 40% for chronic low back pain show that we need to do much better. Diagnosing your patient correctly still sounds pretty complex. Where do you start with that process? It's always best to start with pathoanatomy, which is where your red flags live. 
If a patient has any red flags, further investigations are needed and possibly emergency care. So as a reminder, these red flags are history of cancer, unexplained weight loss, constant pain that doesn't vary with movement or change in position, severe night pain, abdominal pain and a change in bowel habits, bilateral paresthesia, saddle sign, paresthesia around the anus, urinary retention, and fecal incontinence. An interesting, if somewhat disconcerting study recently showed that red flag questionnaires on their own are not that reliable at picking up dangerous conditions. The clinician's overall view of the patient's presentation is crucial. Even if red flags aren't raised, if things don't add up, sinister causes such as cancer may still be present. So, apart from the red flags, what else needs to be considered in assessing these patients? After this point, provided someone doesn't have any red flags, the main consideration is nerve root impingement from disc herniation, spinal stenosis, or degenerative spondylolisthesis, which is indicated by paresthesia, lower limb weakness, or pain lower than the knee. While it's not an immediate emergency, lower limb weakness that isn't improving should be a trigger for referring to a neurologist, because if a nerve root is compressed and the motor neuron affected, if not released, permanent leg weakness can result. I've seen this in a handful of clients over the years who've come to me after the fact, and it can really impact on someone, particularly if they enjoyed playing sport prior to their injury. If there's no lower limb weakness, but they have pain or paresthesia, studies show that long-term outcomes are no different when comparing surgical versus conservative management. However, patients that have nerve root decompression have a much better pain relief over these two years. So this needs to be weighed up on an individual basis with the risks and downside of any surgery with the individual in mind. So apart from these important signs and factors, there is no or poor correlation between findings on investigations, such as disbulging and facet joint degeneration. And some studies even show that spondylolisthesis on MRI has no correlation with back pain. Research suggests that perhaps in the very young there may be some correlation. However, the older you get, the more likely these changes are simply like the wrinkles on your face. They don't look great, but they don't mean your face doesn't work or will give you pain. And you don't say you have arthritis of the face. Many a well-intentioned health practitioner in the past has relayed findings such as these to a patient, only to set them up for a lifetime of pain. Evidence has come to light in recent years, which shows that the psychosocial aspects of low back pain contribute much more to chronicity than the physical nature or pathoanatomy of the condition. Recently, Australian research shows that the five characteristics that can best predict chronic low back pain are severity of pain, presence of leg pain, compensable funding such as workers' comp and other third-party funding, presence and level of depression, and perceived risk of persistence of pain by the sufferer. So three of the five best predictors of chronic pain are in fact psychosocial factors. So the more we make the patient worry about their pain, the worse they believe it is, the more likely they are to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So showing someone the common findings or wrinkles on imaging, such as disbulging or facet joint degeneration and even spondylolisthesis, not only are they most likely irrelevant, it increases their likelihood of having chronic pain by making the patient more depressed and less positive about their recovery. Of course, some people will have these psychosocial factors present no matter what you say or how positive you are about their prognosis. There are some good questionnaires like the Central Sensitization Inventory and Tampa Scale of Kinesiophobia, 
to help identify patients with these fears. These patients should be referred to a specialist pain clinic with appropriately skilled psychologists to help diffuse these natural tendencies as soon as possible. I've gone out of order now, but this is when we talk about the second category, the movement category. This is now the physio's wheelhouse. You can have no significant pathoanatomy and no significant psychosocial factors, but if you have movement dysfunction, you'll continue to experience ongoing pain or repeated episodes of pain. I like to break this category down into restricted range of movement, poor movement or postural control, and weakness. So firstly, if you have tight muscles or stiff joints, there's a chance you can't complete the task in your life without overly stressing your back. For example, if you have really tight hamstrings, every time you pick something up off the ground, you'll have to go into full lumbar spine flexion just to reach the ground, which puts increased pressure on your discs, which increases the likelihood of injury or mechanical pressure which is perceived as pain. If you have stiff facet joints which restricts bending backwards or limits your lumbar lordosis, simply lying on your stomach in bed can put your facet joints in a compressed position which leads to pain, let alone the pressure they will experience when lifting something up overhead. Manual therapy should be utilised to address these physical restrictions, but only for as long as needed before teaching the patient to loosen these structures themselves. Repeated or ongoing manual therapy for long periods is not only expensive, it becomes counterproductive as the patient becomes a passive recipient of care and it reinforces unhelpful psychology. Referring back to the uh, pain sensitization category again. Secondly, poor movement control or postural control or motor control, which are all labels for the same thing, is another movement dysfunction which can lead to chronic or repeated back pain. To give an analogy, think of a drunk driver driving down a street with poor control banging into buildings or parked cars. This, in a sense, is what poorly controlled spinal movement is like. Without smooth, controlled movement, the soft tissues in the back are repeatedly stressed with everyday things such as unpacking a dishwasher, getting shopping out of the boot of a car, or doing what would otherwise be healthy exercise. Another dimension of this is sustained stress at end of range, such as sitting slumped for long periods, or standing leaning back, or to enter the side of your spine to get stability from your facet joints. Pressure builds up and pain is felt, even though there, was, there is no actual soft tissue disruption. And then we get to weakness, or lack of muscular strength, endurance or power. In this day and age, we are very inactive. We all know the ills of sitting all day, but as it pertains to our musculoskeletal system, we get stiffer, tighter and weaker, so that when we do go to lift a suitcase, garden or move house, our backs are too weak to handle the activity and we are likely to suffer pain. The pain might, might be due to nociceptive input from tissue disruption, but it may just be due to stressed tissues that are not used to load. Not to undersell the relevance of the first and third categories when it comes to physiotherapy input. Of course, when it comes to any pathoanatomy that's present, we need to be aware of this for when treating with manual therapy, empowering the patient to self-treat or giving appropriate control and strengthening exercises. And for those that display mild to moderate unhelpful psychosocial factors, identifying these, giving appropriately positive messaging, and giving the, getting the patient stronger and more confident in their body with exercise addresses what sits in their third psychosocial category. Without having the tools and facility at your disposal to do the assessments yourself, and there are quite a lot, it's often easier to identify other indicators, the biggest being inactivity. 
If someone is overweight, has poor posture, or doesn't have an active lifestyle, you can almost guarantee they will have some degree of stiffness, tightness, poor control, and lack of strength that is impacting their back pain. And without an active lifestyle, they won't naturally self-rehab either. I often joke that the rehab physios do these days is simply getting people to work their body like they would have 100 years ago in the course of their everyday life. Many true word is said in jest. Another way of looking at the problem, if someone doesn't have significant pathoanatomy and if they don't have significant psychosocial factors, something has to be contributing to their pain. The only thing left is movement dysfunction. The only problem with this approach is that it's retrospective and you're always better off preventing chronicity than waiting for it to show. Nathan, can you please elaborate? How can we prevent chronicity? So you definitely don't want to wait three months to see if something will resolve on its own. But you don't want to create worry by referring unnecessarily either. My most common advice is, unless something is truly severe, give it two weeks. If it's going to resolve on its own, it's well on the way by the two-week mark. This is because inflammation has peaked and is well on its way back down. But if at the two-week mark the patient hasn't started to improve, then refer at this stage. If it's getting more painful and causing more dysfunction, then they need to be referred straight away because something needs to change. Nathan, thank you. That was a really informative session on lower back pain. What would be your three take-home messages for our listeners? Check for red flags and refer to a neurologist urgently if present. Be aware of what isn't significant when it comes to pathoanatomy. Remember, they are just wrinkles. Refer to a neurologist when weakness is present and isn't improving. Give patients positive messaging around back pain resolving and complete recoveries. Identify those with significant psychosocial factors. There are some good questionnaires and refer these patients to psychologists that specialise in pain. Identify those who are physically inactive or show signs of movement dysfunction, stiffness, tightness, poor control and lack of strength to physiotherapy. Repeated manual therapy is not warranted. Empowering patients to self-treat and improving control and strength are vital to prevent chronicity and repeated episodes. Never leave it longer than three months. If someone isn't well on the way to recovery at two weeks, refer them as a matter of practice. Nathan, thanks again for your time and for the insights you've provided us. Thanks for having me, Sean.